This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome back to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences and cultural experiences and the way that they affect their life and work. This episode is A Brush With Tracy Rose. Tracy is an important figure in recent art from South Africa. She was born in Durban in South Africa and as you'll hear she had an eventful childhood going to a convent school which made a huge impression on her and in fact has been reflected in her work. She studied at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg and graduated in 1996 and actually achieved some success on the international art stage before doing her Masters at Goldsmiths College in London, graduating in 2007. She currently lives in Johannesburg. Tracy works in a variety of media but is best known for her performances and video and as a young artist she established her practice in quite a dramatic way in a series of very powerful performances that placed her own body at the centre. In a 1996 work on the titled which means untitled she filmed herself on CCTV shaving off all her body hair in a bathroom. Then in 1997 at the second Johannesburg Biennial she performed naked with a shaven head in a cabinet slowly knotting and weaving her hair together. In the video installation TKO, meaning technical knockout from 2000, she filmed herself naked on surveillance cameras again but this time in a boxing ring attacking a punch bag and actually she'd learned to box for several years beforehand. These extreme works were made in the immediate aftermath of the end of apartheid in South Africa and inevitably were provocative in drawing attention to issues of gender and in particular in relation to the black body. The year after TKO, Tracy made a hugely ambitious work which riffed on Leonardo's Last Supper, and that was called Ciao Bella. It appeared at the Venice Biennale organised by the legendary curator Harold Zeman in 2001. And in that work, using extreme costumes and makeup, she performed the roles of 13 women to represent Christ and the disciples, from fictional characters like Nabokov's Lolita to historical figures like Marie Antoinette and Sartre Bartman, who was a 19th century South African woman who was brought to the UK and paraded in freak shows. Chow Bella set the tone for many of Tracy's work since then in establishing the role of the absurd and the carnivalesque alongside that rigorous commitment to issues of race and gender. Increasingly the reference points in her work have grown more complex and she draws together disparate threads from art, from political theory and from much more in often long performances. Two recent pieces reflect this growing attention to research. For the Performer Biennial in New York in 2017, Tracy created a piece called The Good Ship Jesus versus the Black Star Line, which on the one hand referenced the first slave ship carrying Africans to the Americas and then on the other hand evoked the ill-fated shipping line which was founded by the pan-Africanist political leader Marcus Garvey. That piece also referenced black power movements in the US and the set for the performance conjured the black and white television which Tracy and her family grew up watching in South Africa. 
Then at the recent Sharjah Biennial, Tracy created Anyway the Wind Blows, another complex work reflecting on her family history, which was set in the Sharjah Ladies Club ice rink. Now in that work, as well as Atlantic histories, Tracy examined the East African and Indian Ocean slave trade, into which her father's ancestors had been sold. And this was all told through the presence of Garvey's ghosts. And to add a further layer of complexity, Anyway the Wind Blows is a reference to a lyric in that Queen song Bohemian Rhapsody, and is a nod to the Queen singer Freddie Mercury's ancestry in Zanzibar. The presence of Garvey's ghost is indicative of the increasing prominence of spirituality and spiritual ideas in Tracy's recent work and often woven into these collective and personal histories. She's arguably at the most creative moment in her career so far, hence a new retrospective at the Zeitz Mocha Gallery in Cape Town, which is organised by the Zeitz director and leading curator Koyo Kuo, who you'll hear Tracy talk about in the interview. That show was actually due to open in 2020, but was postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic and is scheduled for February 2021. Now, before we begin the interview, Tracy stopped in the middle of it to explain her use of a problematic word, coloured. Here she is explaining why she uses that term. I say within South Africa, I'm, I'm, I'm coloured. I mean, I would have said African all along. I still do. But there's, there's this moment right now where that's become politically charged again. So I've got to reinvestigate it. And I'm starting to say that in ways that I've never had before. And um, as opposed to when I travel and I'm black, I'm African, I'm black, and, and that's it. There's no complication there. But yeah, it's still fraught. So we actually haven't actually really dealt with, with the intricacies of the, the racism of, of the past. Now to the interview. I began by asking Tracy about the role of absurdity in her work and if it was particularly useful in tackling major social and geopolitical subjects. I suppose as a, as, a, as a sort of get, get out of jail free card, you know, I, I, I use it. I, I think it's easy to laugh at and in, incredibly serious and disturbing, provocative issues. Um, and, and I prefer, I think I prefer that as a, as a, as a reaction, as an initial reaction. It's, you know, I think laughter is quite seductive. So, um, you know, in that space, you, you, you know, you, you kind of ease the, any kind of, aggression or um, I don't suppose animosity or kind of negative reaction to, to which I yeah I, I, mean, I use it as a self-protective device rather than a, as anything really uh, strategic in a more sort of social kind of space you know what I mean it's, it's, it's purely self-preservatory. That's great. And one of the ways in which that sort of manifests itself through the work is through costume and makeup and the painting of the body. Can you say something about the way that you use that and what sort of visual role they play in your work? I mean, I'm a frustrated painter, so <laughs> you know, and and the frustrated sculptor. So I mean, you know, it's kind of a way of 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 working that sort of magic with my hands and um, and uh, you know, taking that flattened surface or the 3D surface. And the first works where I started doing the the body painting, um, because prior to that, you know, it was it was the naked form. It was the the body as a I don't know as a as a, as a tool as a as a as a medium as a a form in, in, in space as a sort of political device. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of looking at myself really as this charged tool or medium. And and for me, that kind of sort of turning point was when I did TKO, which was looking at uh, 
painting quite quite formally. I trained as a, as a professional boxer for uh, four years before I did that piece, or two years, I can't remember. But um, I, I, I didn't actually get in the ring with anybody because I, I honestly cannot take a punch. I wanted to emulate the, the mark making of Monet's water lilies, you know, and, and, and for me, the punching was a, was a way of, of kind of, you know, of, of dabbing the, the paint on, onto the canvas. And the actual structure of, of the space was, uh, f- you know, a white cube that was deconstructed into a sort of um, two-dimensional form, which was a reference to cubism. So, so I mean, this is not really answering a question, but like I'm saying, like directly, I'm kind of going the long route. For me, that moment was really quite cathartic when I when I uh, created that work because it just uh, was the culmination of, of so much investigation and just a good few years of, of, of frustration. And, you know, and also, you know, the, the, the final piece ended up as an installation. So it was like, I you know, wanted the audience to, to walk into the artwork, to, to feel the artwork, to be, to be part of it. So there's a the considerations of where the projector is going to, going to be placed and, and the angling of the screen and all that. Um, and then immediately afterwards is Charbella, which starts with, you know, the body painting and the, the sort of more, absurdist kind of performance and performativity and um uh, and that you know was a way to find out how to merge childhood trauma play fantasy in a space but um the impetus behind the, the also the choice of the last supper with charbella was uh the first drawing i I did where I discovered that I was an artist and I kind of was, was affirmed to be there was um, when I was in uh, grade one and um, I'd gotten into a all white convent school because my dad had had a meeting with the bishops when he, I think we'd gone to visit America on this sort of fly now, pay, pay later sort of scheme. And my dad had heard uh, Archbishop Hurley talking about uh, the Catholic Church not being racist and, you know, having all of these these different um, schools. But what he didn't make clear was that the schools weren't integrated, that you had um, a colored Catholic school, an Indian Catholic school, black, you know, white Catholic schools. And so when we returned from saying my dad called the meeting with the bishops and my father wanted to be a priest. So he's like, yeah, pretty well respected, you know, and uh, he basically told him that the Catholic church was antichrist because they practice racism and uh, they weren't integrated. So um, I was one of the first kids. I was the guinea pig to be let into this, um, into the white Catholic school. And um, this is like primary school and high school. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty fucking traumatic. I mean, absolutely racist bitches and everybody, including my teacher. And uh, no, nobody explained this shit to me. I mean, I ended up there and my first day at school, I'm wearing this white dress and this big bow in my hair, these bobby socks. And um, the teacher was an absolute racist bitch, yelled at my mom for um, not having, uh, you know, me not being in school uniform. You know, there's all this kind of racial tension and trauma with all of these little bitches. And then uh, we had to draw the last supper. And my um, mom, um, my sister said to me, you know, let, let mommy draw you, do, do the drawing because we all knew my mother was the artist in the family. So, you know, she does the drawing and I take it to school. Everybody's comparing theirs and they see mine and they're like, oh, this is amazing. Um, who did it? And my sister had told me like, 
don't tell anybody that it wasn't you, say it was you. So I was like, I did it. And they were like, oh, great. And they started pulling out their last suppers from their little religious instruction books and asked me to do the drawings for them. And I was terrified. And all I did was follow the mark that my mother had made um, in my book. And uh, and then I was like, you know, baptized as the artist in, in, in the year. And, and from then on, my, the sort of levels of respect I received were completely different to, to before that. And so that was when I realized, like, what the uh, the duty and the normity and the gravity and, you know, the benefit of, of art was. So... Um, Going back, you know, I was you know with Child Bella was going back to that moment of of the Last Supper, and um, the sort of reenactment of some of these characters. You know, I mean, it was quite an intuitive way that I approached that. So I was in Cape Town, and I was with a friend of mine. We, we were having dinner, and I was t- showing him the the sketch that I'd made of the, the table and the characters that I was going to have in in in, in Child Bella. And I hadn't yet titled it, and I was still sort of working on it. And, you know, the, the immediacy of drawing is that, you know, it, it's not mediated. So it's, you know, straight from your end sort of energetic point into the pen, into onto the page. And I said, oh, you know, I need like two years to really interrogate this and actually get it out. And he said to me, well, why don't you just trust yourself? And I thought that was the craziest thing. Nobody ever told me that. And I remember looking at Table Mountain because the restaurant was quite near. And I looked at it and I said to myself, well, I said to the mountain, to my basically my ancestors I was like you know if you exist then I'm giving this over to you and you know and that was the invitation to uh Zeman's uh uh 2001 Venice Biennale which is a quite risky thing to do I mean I'd never done that before and it was amazing it was like the work actually made itself so all of these characters were kind of generated within the process so um initially i was going to get a friend of mine to to be my costume mistress but she had a crack habit and she she was kind of stealing materials so i had to fire her and then i was like left without anybody and i was and my mom was around and i was like you know i'm kind of desperate would you want to do this and she said fuck of course i, would, I thought you'd never ask and she was amazing i mean she just finished my sentences and i remember at one point i said to her like you're not my mother like you were my employee basically like, she's like you don't have to be so mean and like yeah she was just so incredible and it was kind of also like this really strange sort of rebirthing of our relationship also in 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 that space and you know i got hooked i got hooked on the 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 hyper color the intensity of 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 gesture i mean we, we shot that um that video in three days um I think I scripted it and worked on everything over three months um, from sort of concept to to execution, conception to execution, which I find is also just absurd terminology that we use in the art world. We can <laughs> conceive a work and then we execute it. Um, and so, yeah, and, and so, you know, and kind of having these sort of two, like two kind of, I don't know, versions, I suppose, uh, in, my, in, my, in my palette box of that I could play with, you know, this sort of black and white, quite sort of minimalistic, and now into this like full-blown cacophony of, of, of color and, and sound and absurd. It was kind of, it was a bit of an enema just to, to kind of get that you know getting to that space of self-expression let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests who was the first artist whose work you loved Monet <laughs> yeah it was 
the first time I saw the the water lilies uh, was somewhere in the 90s. And um, I'm saying somewhere in the 90s, but I think it's roped off now. But I was like two centimeters away from the surface of the canvas. And I just wanted to take my eyeballs out and just roll it along. You know, it's just this commitment to this mark and to color uh, and the expanse of the surface. Um, you know, and there's a there's this 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 joy just in just making. Yeah, I'm gonna say Picasso as well, but yeah, no, it's um, I think that the machismo element has has put me off over the years. <laughs> but it's really interesting because Monet has become so detached from his initial radicalism you know and it's really interesting that you you somehow kind of occupied that space of his of 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 how kind of profound what he was doing was he's become such a chocolate box artist it's so easy to dismiss him as a serious artist these days sadly when you saw his work you say it's in the 90s so you 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 were sort of in your 20s right when you when you had this mm-hmm. experience with Monet so you you would I guess you're aware that you, you were aware at that time of of his reputation as it were as a kind of you know in 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 Europe especially he seems particularly associated with a kind of almost a conservatism in art well you know i um my experience of of artworks i mean outside of uh going to like the johannesburg art gallery and others yeah i suppose i didn't really even go to the commercial spaces because i found him so intimidating but um was during my entire kind of art history education we used to view really washed out ancient slides so all the colors were like this yellow <laughs> you know kind of off whites and and bleached out and yeah and then you know obviously you don't you don't get into scale and all of that if you're looking in in, in books but um my 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 experiences with, with with artwork, and I think this is probably why I, I I love video so much. My experiences with artwork was 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 as light, you know, as not not as 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 matter and material and, and stuff, you know. Um, so you know, just seeing that. You know, I don't want to say it's 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 it's, it's more of a sort of formal uh, enjoyment because that just sanitizes the experience. But I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was bliss, man. <laughs> so lush so lush oh my <laughs> fuck my eyeballs were like overjoyed <laughs> <laughs> which historical artist do you turn to the most today Duchamp and and that goes back to this crazy um wonderful uh professor who um Rory Dupel and he um he would show like a thousand slides in a, in a lecture he'd have like all the slide projectors full and all of them going at the same time and then there were like six in the back and um and I sat used to sit in the front of his class and just weep and his theory was Duchamp and the Dadaists were practicing Kabbalists so everything that they did was based on the Kabbalah. And so, you know, the elements of magic and alchemy that come into the work. So it's not just art for art's sake. This is magic and alchemy that we're dealing with. And, you know, that that's attached to spirit. And, um, and you know, um, I don't know about international institutions, but we also studied um, African art, you know, the African art objects, not in contemporary African art, because that was barely covered, but, you know, the sort of a more kind of anthropological look at, at, at the way that objects were created throughout Africa because a couple of our, our, our lecturers, professors, were um, sort of specialists in, in that. I mean, I think their work is somewhat problematic now, but um, uh, and, and what I what, what joy I found with that was that, you know, art wasn't just about creating an image and decor and it was far more innate 
impetus. And I found that with with, with, with Duchamp, I mean, he was the first um, white male artist that wasn't using a paintbrush. I mean, I call it cock art because really it is. It's just like painting with your fucking dick. I mean, that's all we've been fucking subjected to is just cock art. <laughs> so, you know, and he has this person working with stuff that was charged. It wasn't just intellectually charged, it was spiritually charged. And and I love that. I love that 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 the work was 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 alive and invigorated with a duty to do something bigger than itself, you know? Well, I think one of the intriguing things about Duchamp is it's because it, because he's still the name I would say most artists seem to get seem to be able to mine in all sorts of different ways, and you know that what you derive from Duchamp might be totally different from say Ronnie Horn, who we spoke to, who also admires Duchamp tremendously. It seems to me he just sets artists free in all sorts of directions. Would that be fair? Yeah, but I mean, like, look at the look at that point. I mean, it was like the turn of the century that we're being exposed to so much from all over the world and they start to question their reality within this 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 very constrained space and by doing so they they use the 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 tools and the gifts i would say from other kind of lineages and for me like duchamp is probably the most african you can get in terms of european art um because i feel like his work embodies the spirit so much and that's why i also think that when you look at a lot of contemporary african art and the way that you know we use matter and material you know it's not um it's you know obviously because there's 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 really practical economic issues so you know you you can't really get um the high-end stuff um and uh you know in terms of paints whatever so you find other ways and other sort of uh creative visual material metaphors to, to 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 create the work and i feel that 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 he has um validated that space you know that's really interesting let's talk about um contemporary artists which contemporary artists do you most admire Carlos Capellan. I assisted him when he was on the first Joburg Biennale, and I say the scales fell from my eyes because I, I was quite close to to him and his assistant when they were working, and um, there was this beautiful moment when um, they wouldn't give him the space that he'd requested, and so um, he was at the coffee shop, like uh, busy just working on, on, on it. And, and uh, I wanted to go and sit with him and his assistant called me to sit with him. And, and then I said to him, like, what is he, uh, what is he doing? Uh, and he said, he's reconceptualizing the space. And I was like, why? He's like, well, he wasn't given the space that he was told he would get initially. So now he's going to reconfigure the entire artwork. And I was fucking gobsmacked because it showed you know, what he does, this is serious shit, you know. Um, you can't just take a work and transplant it somewhere else. There's a multitude, you know, and that for me goes back to the kind of sort of Duchampian moment where you consider every aspect. You know, if you're going to have a rhinoplast wall as opposed to a brick wall, it says something very different. And considering, you know, entrance spaces that have now changed to all of these, these like micro elements, you know, what, what the plug in the wall is going to be, you know, where's it going to be? You know, I just like that was like a really formative moment. It was also just like he was he was kind of mental, silent mental. He didn't know it um, just by engaging with him and talking. Yeah. So Carlos Kaplan, Adrian Piper. Um, uh, who I was exposed to my, I think, fourth year. My, I, I, I was a professor, African-American professor on a Fulbright scholarship in um, the History of Art Department, Dr. Robin Chandler. And her 
her classes were on um, African American art and and culture, and I attended like every single one of her of her classes, even though I wasn't registered for her course. And we became really good friends. And she introduced me to Adrian Piper. The calling card work just brought me to tears. Lorena Grady, who I only met, um, actually we haven't also just physically, maybe sort of being in a two-person exhibition at the Goodman Gallery a few years back. Um, and I hadn't actually known about her work and also just just another incredible artist. And David Hammonds, you know, I was with the Project um, Gallery in, in uh, New York and... Um, I was the youngest artist in, in the gallery. And so everybody around me were just such incredible artists. It's um, Coco Fusco, um, Daniel Martinez, uh, uh, William Pope Al, and Pope Al now, um, Paul Pfeiffer, Julie Moretu, Corey Newkirk. So, you know, like really, really strong, good artists, you know, um, who just feed me. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's like, being at an art buffet. I mean, that's probably a disgusting thing to say. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to talk a bit about artist peers because there was an, um, you did an Instagram live with Koyo um, Kuo recently mm-hmm. and you started to say something really interesting and, and then Koyo interrupted you. So I want to follow up on it mm-hmm. because you said that when you were exhibiting, I think this must have been in the sort of 2000s and you were being invited to lots of international shows. Mm-hmm. And one of the hallmarks of that moment was that you weren't being paid. You were sort of essentially being being um, brought over and in, sort of almost um, employed without any payment mm. and expected to do to public talks and expected to do all the things that, that one expects of an artist, but not actually being remunerated for mm. it. And within that context, you established a kind of a peer group you, you, or you suggested that you, you and other artists were talking about this as a kind of major thing. And I... I wanted to talk a bit about that moment and about was, you know, was there a sense in which there was this this great apparently globalist project happening in the early 2000s that actually was deeply problematic in terms of its attitude to artists and what it expected of artists? Mm-hmm. I mean, it actually started in the mid 90s. Well, my experience with it started in the mid 90s. I probably got a bit more polished in, 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 in the course of the, two, of the early of the later 2000s. Uh, I think where artists were demanding that they get paid. Um, I would uh, ask to do workshops or or lectures um, at uh, local institutions so that I could get paid that way. I was also getting experience just teaching. The one thing I say is that I'm I'm militant about art and I'm militant about education. And um, that was just amazing to also just see the different ways that art education was taught in, in, in just different institutions globally. I think there was also just a desperation on our part, you know, and we kind of knew that if the work didn't get out there, there wasn't going to be a global shift. And it was almost like you you just had to had to swallow it, you know. Um, and, um, I mean, there were points where you could sort of make demands and or you could ask, but there was also the possibility that you would be blocked off a show because you were, you, you were asking for funds that didn't exist, for example. Uh, in some cases, there weren't any funds, you know. Um, so, you know, they would pay for you just your plane ticket and your hotel accommodation. You were lucky if you got your, if you got a per, di- per diem. I mean, you know, also the thing is it still happens today. I was thinking about that earlier of just how, 
um, savagely disrespectful that is because, you know, we all have side gigs. We all do other things in order to survive. And it's almost supposed to be some kind of rite of passage or some sort of merit award if you if you can survive this moment. And, and say, you know, I do this because I can't do anything else. You know, if I, if I have to look too hard at that moment, I'll probably burst into tears because it's, it was it was incredibly hard for so many of us you know I mean we were sleeping on each other's couches I mean it, it's kind of what what all artists uh, in all kind of arts fields do whether you a dancer, musician, it's, it's almost as though this is your, your, you know, your trial by fire, you know, your rite of passage. And I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's valid or, or not, um, or necessary at all. I mean, yeah, like I said, it still happens. So it's not like it's in the past. And, and I think that it, it's just something that really needs to be worked on um, internationally uh, and locally, you know, in our spaces. We've got to find ways to, to ensure that, um, you know, artists aren't always, um, you know, living from hand to mouth. So we talked about lots of artists, but do you have any any art pinned to your studio wall? Yes, I have Lala Kunst. Um, Lala Kunst is the work my son does. Um, yeah, his name is Luan Le, but uh, uh, his nickname's Lala. And... Uh, I, yeah, so so his work just oh his work just brings me such joy. He's such a good artist. He's so much better than I will ever be. Um, he he actually did a did a one of my artworks. He he and uh, uh, Victoria Northland's son collaborated on on the wall drawing in the piece I did in um, Buenos Aires. But we were walking into the elevator, and I was like, oh look, there's Mummy's name, and he was like. And where's my name? And he refused to speak to me for an hour because he wasn't credited. <laughs> and yeah, his work is just awesome. It's so awesome. Like he's like my best critic. Um, <laughs> yeah. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. One of the guys that you'll find on the app allows you to follow The Line, the public art walk in London that runs from the Greenwich Peninsula to Stratford in East London, along waterways including the River Thames and the Royal Docks, following the Greenwich Meridian. The guide to The Line on Bloomberg Connects allows you to get closer to the artist's vision, so you'll hear introductions by leading figures including Anthony Gormley, Nora Ford and Thomas Price to the works along the line, and then, if you want to know more, deep dives take you further into the pieces and the artist's thinking. For instance, Larry Achampong speaks about his sound work Sanko Time, which connects the Meridian in London with Accra, the capital of Ghana, through Achampong's narration and a series of oral histories, which are moving testimonies from members of the black community. Sanko Time was made for the 20-minute round trip on the cable car from the Greenwich Peninsula to the Royal Docks, and you can hear it in its entirety on the app. Inevitably, the stories Achampong illuminates reflect on the slave trade and the continuing racism that's fed into the Black Lives Matter protests of recent years. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app.bloombergconnects.org slash a brushwith. Now let's talk about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Um, Zeit Smoker. Yeah, so it's, I, was, I was thinking about it. It's like I haven't even gone to the Joburg Art Gallery as often as I've gone to Zeit. But that's also because I'm installing the show. We, you know, we, we keep going down for meetings and stuff. Mm. And um, so it's hands down the the, 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 the museum I'm mis- I, I've been visiting the most frequently. 
Is it, I mean, obviously having a show there, it, you know, that inevitably means you go there. But one of the things about Zeitsmoker is it said it's a, it's a contemporary gallery, not just for South Africa, but for Africa. That's a bold ambition, isn't it? So it, do, does it achieve it? Does it feel like a sort of pan-African space as, as much as it is, you know, a, a particular local gallery in Cape Town? Well, now that Koya's uh, directing, yeah. Um, I, I would never have entered there if she wasn't there. <laughs> I was sort of boycotting the space um, when it first opened. So uh, not that I was included. And actually the fact that I was completely overlooked was what, one of the reasons I actually didn't didn't ha- hold it in high regard at all. And I think it was highly problematic before. And um, since since she's taken over the um, directorship of it, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it feels like home. You know, but I mean, Koya's also got the ability to do that. You know, she she kind of makes everybody feel like family and that you, you know, you're visiting the village. <laughs> and that's really what it's like. It's like, I kind of, I mean, I know Storm, who's the, the head curator. For, I know him. So I love that about a lot of the museums that I love. They're all headed by people I love, you know. And I mean, I love like Rena Sophia. It's also just one of those, those the spaces where you feel like family. And I think that, you know, also I mean, kind of going back to that that space in in the in the early two thousands where we weren't being paid and compensated. I mean, like it felt okay because um, somehow even in those spaces. I mean, when I used to have conversations with head curators and museum directors at the time, and then it would be like, you know, um, this is challenging, but we know, but it is financially challenging, but we know that it is really important that you you know you all show your work here and um it was kind of thinking like the kunsthal in Bern, and um like bernard fabisher uh was was the director at the time and and you know if those things hadn't happened you know if we'd said no if if the the you know the money was the um deciding factor a lot of great things wouldn't have come out of those, you know, amazing conversations. I mean, it was the first time that this was the, the Bernsch, uh exhibition. Uh, I think it started off in Accra and then it moved over to, 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 to Bern was that we had met West African artists, I'd met other African artists from outside of South Africa, you know, we're exhibiting internationally. African art exhibitions are like the best parties. I mean, it's like family gatherings. They're just, they're just <laughs> amazing. You know, the food, the, the, the music, the conversation, you know everything is just just so incredible and that allows for some kind of balm I guess for for the financial traumatic side of it which cultural experience changed the way you see the world that would be the first Johannesburg Biennale it was like the scales fell from my eyes you know um it was the first time I'd experienced uh artists of of color who were not european or uh, american who were making art using stuff and uh the stuff spoke you know they were energized they were magic they were alchemic you know and um i also i mean it's, it, it sounds really naive to say this but i realized like how bad apartheid was and it kept us from so much and I, I just wept for a year you know I used to go into Carlos Kaplan's installation and just crawl into the this little room cave-like room that he'd made that we'd um, painted with mud uh, using our hands and I would just I would just cry because it was yeah it was just oh god I'm actually starting to feel emotional about that now yeah it was a really yeah 
it was really, really intense to just kind of see the the level of deception. You know, I mean, it wasn't just you know we'd we'd, we'd figure out ways to to move and you know evolve in in, in this in this in the space, but you know, um, to you know, just seeing the level of, of, of deception and how, how, how deep it ran in, and, and the control. I mean, you know, kind of all systems in my mind at that point just not, not just, just crumbled. They they just disintegrated. Um, it is to see the, the sort of systematic control of, of people within a space and what the alternative would look like, what sort of liberation would look like. I mean, that was 95. So it's like a year. A year. It was just a year after the end of apartheid, right? Yeah. yeah. So so it was really extreme. And I mean, you know, when I was studying, I was like, the, I was the only coloured female student throughout my four years. And you've been weaving your background and your family history into your work quite a lot recently, haven't you? For me, I'm looking at not just myself now, I'm kind of looking at my, so my mother's lineage, which is um, indigenous African. And then I'm, you know, I'm looking at my dad's, which which a lot of the archives, a lot of the, not even archives, just a lot of fucking information has been lost. Because, so what I do is I I, I, I go to different sources. So yeah, um, before I do what I call ghetto research, I just listen to people's stories and kind of assimilate that, and then follow it up with some research and see what I could find. And the thing is, that, you know, when I started started making art, it was pre-internet, so a lot of that was going to the library, or I used to go to um, the bookstore, exclusive books here, and I'd have like. 20 rand for my dad, 10 rand for parking, all day parking, and and the other 10 rand for a bottomless cup of coffee. And I would just go into the bookstore and take a pile of books that speed read and just drink coffee in the coffee shop the whole day. And they were amazing. I mean, I was, I was you know, it was kind of, it was like visiting, a, a, you know, the contemporary section of a library, which just doesn't exist yet. Now, one of the other forms of research that I'm doing is, okay, so I've got this calling to to be um, a traditional healer, um, which people call sangomas here, I call them shamans. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that comes, most artists are. But the good artists are that. I mean, I think Duchamp was a shaman, um, uh, which is why I absolutely love his work because I believe he was totally connected to that. I, I think that if he'd, if he'd had more sort of um, time and access to other spaces and resources, he, he would have gone more in, in depth into African art practices and not just, you know, stayed within the framework of, 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 of the Kabbalah. So, yeah, so I consult, you know, shamans, sangomas, psychics. I spoke to a couple of, 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 of sangomas and the one said, oh, your, your family used to be advisors to the gods. So, I mean, we're not talking about... Um, this sort of timescape, you know, which is why I love sort of stretching out these kind of these these these, these parameters. Because if you advise us to the gods, I mean, like, I mean, I can't even fucking fathom what that means. And he wasn't the first first shaman who told me that. Somebody else had told me the same thing, which I kind of feel makes sense. My dad wanted to be a priest and being so Catholic. Both of my parents are. My mom, she was a Eucharistic minister, so she would kind of give the church service. Then they were sold into slavery, and they were on the East Coast, so they ended up on the island of Mauritius and um, the sugarcane fields. And then she said, then they came back through the wilderness on a long journey. And the journey was my grandfather coming back when he was nine years old with his sister and his dad on the boat uh, back to, uh, you know, African mainland. And they ended up in Durban. My grandfather, 
most of the the, the uh, Mauritians uh, that 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 came over would work on the sugarcane fields as sort of, uh, semi-skilled labor. So they wouldn't be you know chopping the the, the cane anymore. They were uh, milling the the sugar, and then he became a uh, used to light the gas lamps in the city. Um, but my grandfather, he he was a tailor. I mean, in your piece with Jaja Biennale recently, you very, very actively explored these histories, right? So you did a, a piece called Anyway, the Wind Blows, in which you in which these these histories were sort of borne out through complex sort of narratives or nonlinear narratives. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah, precisely. You know, exactly. So, so, so not not the, the the nonlinear at all. I mean, if you you know if you speak into to to beings in other dimensions and consulting people who do the same, I mean, it's obviously you know it's not going to be a straight fucking line. So and <laughs> and and that's what I'm really intrigued about at this moment. I just finished. Uh, well, I'm still working with it. Uh, the Kampala Biennale um, is, is broken up into studios, and. Um, uh, Simon Jimmy is curating it, but uh, you know now we've gone online or whatever. But my so we couldn't physically be in, in Kampala for the show, and so what I've done is I've gone uh, back to the cave, and back to the cave is my mother's side, right? So it's 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 looking at a cave painting. Why did we? Why did we? going to these places and some of them are really difficult to get into like you have to crawl in your belly and I was speaking to a friend of mine he's in archaeology and he he, he was a uh, one of the first colored rock bands called Nine and now he's a um, a doctor of uh, archaeology so we gonna say he's a he's now the ultimate rock star so he's it, you know and he was saying that the the um, acoustics in these these spaces were selected quite deliberately so when you're clapping and you're stumping and you're singing in you know well, um, the, the the resonance does something very particular. You know, there's like also sound healing and other, and then you've got the images, and some of them have the images on the walls. And then, so I was like, okay, why why did we start doing this? This was before museums, before galleries, before we wanted to fucking make names for ourselves. We were doing this with an innate, you know, there was an innate, not, not even desire, reasoning or impetus. So my current kind of conceptual positioning, I guess, is, is going back to the cave, you know, and trying to understand what was the um, fundamental reasons for us wanting to to to, to make and express in, in, in these ways. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the oldest work that they found is in, in South Africa, in the Blombos cave. So, um, yeah, so, so that's kind of where my, my, my space is at the moment. Let's talk about literature a bit. Which writers or poets do you most return to? Uh, Frantz Fanon, um, mainly Black Skins, White Masks, and um, Dr. Francis Chris Welsing's Isis Papers, and Lisekho uh, Ramapolkeng, who's a South African poet and a really good friend of mine. And I find that they sort of my, um, I suppose my, my, my compass in a way, uh, when, when, whenever I kind of get distracted by all the other sort of fluff and the kind of wannabe glam glass shit, it's what, you know, what is the fundamental reason why I'm doing this? And for me, they, you know, um, especially Fanon and, and, and the ISIS papers were 
fundamental attacks on white supremacy, you know. And, I mean, there's, there's an element of absurdity within the ISIS papers that um, um, I quite enjoy. You know, I'm not sure if I entirely believe some of it, um, but uh, I quite enjoy the fact that it exists to give me an alternative to the mega narrative because of one thing I've never been able to get my head around, and that is white supremacist hatred, you know. And that's, you know, that started, like, from... I suppose even before I entered that 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 convent school, so research for me is not just in a, you know in the in the book form and in the written form. It's also in the in the in the oral form. You know, I mean, I grew up listening to stories, um, you know, which were more kind of bravado and bullshit. And and now and again, you get good content, and a lot of it was was repetitive. So you know, like friends would hang out and they'd talk about what they did the weekend before. And so when I started studying at, at university and came across post-colonial theory and I fucking loved it so much, I wanted to tell everybody, you know, we'd go out and like go clubbing and nobody wanted to fucking be near me because all I would do was start speaking, you know, in post-colonial. And the thing is like, I had this <laughs> academic tongue that was developing as well. So nobody fucking understood what I was saying, you know? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I need to neuter this. I need to reconfigure this, you know? And, and then it being exposed to other African artists who, you know, who, even though, you know, of course, it's just, some of them had studied internationally, whatever, they were still playing the game of being the African, you know, uh, and I mean, I, I call it Kunin with K-H-O-O-N, um, I-N-G, um, because it's something that I, I've also consciously done. I mean, it's a means to an end. I hate speaking in, uh, in, 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 the, in the kind of speak of, of the day, you know, it's like this performing blackness and performativity and all of these fucking box ticking, you know, um, the criteria is I also believe that art creates theory. Um, it also can utilize it, but you know when you when you um, when you consume the theory, you you internalize it. It becomes something else. It mutates, and then when you create the work, you've created an entirely new, evolved form of what that theory was initially. And that's really what art should do. It shouldn't be a fucking illustration, you know, of of the theory. Um, let's talk about music. Which music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? At the moment, I'm listening to a radio station called YFM, uh, which was started in the 90s uh, by some friends of mine. And, you know, it was very kind of black conscious. It was fucking sexy as hell. It was like in the rainbow period, you know, with... I mean, like, literally in that Mandela period of the Rainbow Nation, it was, you know, that, that twilight space where everything has just got that, that beautiful glow. It's like a golden, that's, we all had that. All of our eyesight was that, you know. And then the honeymoon was fucking over. Um, and um, and then, yeah, things started to get corrupted and then mutated into all these other things. And I didn't really like what YFM was after, or uh, I, I think it started off as, as uh, Soweto Radio. And then it became YFM and there was a, ma- a magazine attached to it, um, which was really amazing. And then everything got dumbed down and it was almost like it was a conscious. Um, actually, I know it was conscious because uh, friends, friends of mine who were journalists on the magazine said they were called in by the uh, major publishing house and they were told what they could and could not do anymore. And they literally had to dumb everything down. And now it's actually uh, picked up. But there's still a little bit of like mm, kind of, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say superficial, just kind of glossy, glammy, kind of poser, kind of element, you know, it, things to an ish little bit there and there. But um, um, what I really love is the way that they navigate that space, because clearly that that sort of 
embargo still on, you know, like kind of dumbed down, you know, the the, the, the youth. But these kids that are, you know, that are on I mean, I shouldn't say they're kids because I don't want to say people are kids. It fucking ages me. Um, it's They are just so incredibly witty and smart. And, um, you know, you can see that that's also the the, the product of a, a, a multiracial, a melange kind of education. I mean, they're in the space where they're all, everybody, you know, it's not the it's not the separation of races again. Like just, I mean, one of the DJs, I was like, I was going to find if, if, if he thinks that, that what this kid's doing is blackface because he's um he's white but when i first heard him i thought he was black and he he speaks like several south african languages i think and he's just so hilariously funny and you know um and i was like damn i'm so dated in the manner in which i'm also interrogating his integrity that's so audacious and you know um the music is incredible. It's it's you know it's it's uh, local. It's it's continental. It's global, um, and and also uh, oh god, there was such an amazing mix last night. This guy was mixing some sort of old school hip hop and contemporary um, Afrobeat. It was fucking kick ass. I could not stop dancing. If you'd asked me like two three months ago, I was uh, I was listening to um, to jazz and and. I used to listen to Deep House like back in uh, the early 2000s, and that's where I found my my soul. I was like, I, I was I was like uh, six, five, five, five out of six days. What was it? Hang on, the club opened on Tuesday. Yeah, so Monday it was closed. So yeah, Monday, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, until Sunday afternoon, I was on the dance floor. No drugs, no alcohol, just Deep House, and I never wore the same outfit twice. You use music quite a lot in your work, don't you? Can we talk about that work that you made for the Philharmonie in Berlin where you asked a choir to sing a German version of Downpresser Man by Peter Tosh uh, and then beat them as they did it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the <laughs> So the concept was, so I'd found out that it had been built, I mean, it's it's, it's common knowledge that it was built on, on, on top of a location where I think, pardon, uh, 500,000 or 150,000, somehow uh, people were eugenicized. And so um, at the time I was working on this theory and I'd spoken to another psychic in Canada who told me that there was a, a force field that covers the earth. And I've got this tendency to 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 um, research at the most extremes as I can possibly find. So I was I was researching um, Alex Jones at the time. And I was quite interested in the space where the extreme left wing and the extreme right wing meet because there's there's a you know there's a crossover in some of the you know perceptions let's say and so he had a show where he was talking about this being a prison planet and then i find i found some other link somewhere else where there was some description about the vibration and the incarceration of 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 the english language of the way that we speak uh, as opposed to indigenous languages i was thinking of 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 the way that the the vibration of of sounds and words can change things 
And so my theory was that the sounds that were being generated in the Philharmonie were so incarcerated by its structure uh, that it, you know, you know, the, the sort of Western classical music was so incarcerating um, that um, the vibrations of the sounds, because of their limitation, where you go to other sort of indigenous uh, instruments, for example, they, they have a different range and a different kind of musicality. And yeah, so I wanted to disrupt that space. I wanted to liberate it more than disrupt it. So. My my theory was that there were these spirits were still stuck in the Philharmonie and they needed to get out. And so I needed to crack a hole in the shield. And this would be an incredible, powerful location to do it because in in my mind, the sort of uh, Romanesque, Freemasonic, whatever the you know uh, establishment had created objects and structures on on on, on spaces that uh, cross particular meridians, and those are power power meridians. And so this Philharmonic space is obviously on a power meridian uh, cross uh, head, you know, um, and so crosshair basically. And so if I could use it as a, as a weapon, weaponize it um, by changing the vibration that it wasn't ordained to create. I could um, cause a, um, a crack in, in, in the shield and liberate our spirits that are incarcerated. Because, because one of the concepts was that, you know, it was also almost like reincarnation. It's like we die, become alive. You know? So we never, we never become intergalactic beings once we come here. I mean, that was, a, that was a theory I was playing with back in, what was 2012, 2013. Um, yeah, I've moved on. But I, I just kind of sort of love this idea of using the, the space of, of, you know, fantasy and possibility, or sci-fi, or whatever, to, to kind of... Um, disrupt. So, so yeah. So I got them to to sing "Down Presser Man," and I had it translated in German. And you know, you can't sing reggae. Re- I don't know. I've never heard reggae in German. I never heard German <laughs> reggae. <laughs> Back to absurdism, you know. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, And so I proceeded to 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 kind of liberate their spirits, but I wasn't. I wasn't really. I wasn't hitting them in order to hurt them. I was. I was beating them with a sort of cupped hand, like a you know. With a cupped hand, in order to to um, to liberate their spirits too. So it's, yeah, it's you know it's it's that space that art occupies, which can be really dangerous between like you know occultism and, and alchemy, and you, you kind of you, you know you don't want to cross over into that space. Like that's 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 the trick. That's what art's supposed to do. It's supposed to be the space of temperance for extreme magic. You know, you're, you're supposed to just pull back a bit, you know, before it becomes something else. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as a sort of essential ritual? I found that lying on my on my tummy, whether in the bath or in in bed, is a really good way of refining the work. Um, and I figured it's because the navel um, connects. Your, you know, your navel was the essential point. You know, that connected you to your life source your you know your your placenta your mother yeah and um and it connects directly into your into your stomach so um yeah um i'm this is this is this is why i'm, I'm validating it in my mind or trying to understand it <laughs> 
was like, so I'm picking up the earth's energy through my navel, which is why I'm getting the information. And then I was thinking the other day about like how I was going to answer this and explain this. And I was thinking like, oh, there's, there's this thing called the Akashic text where you, you, you sort of tap in and it's, it's, it's almost like every life you've ever lived, everything you've ever going to do, everything you've ever done. And it's, it's, it's all kind of there scripted. And um, so if you tap into that source, you can, you, you know, you find the information um, that's kind of readily available for all of us. Um, so, yeah, but I find that like when I lay on my tummy, it's like, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Like things really, they, they, they just get, they become tighter, more refined, a lot more honed, a lot more polished. Um, I've got to do it several times over the course of making a work, you know, um, depending on how I'm making that work. So if, yeah, if it's more process building, you know, physical making of works um, that aren't just sort of prop based, it takes takes a while for the information to kind of download, you know. Um, if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? There's a, a place uh, just 45 minutes outside of Johannesburg. From what I remember, it's called Redan. And um, um, off, if, you, if, you, if you take the, the off-ramp, you have to go, you drive a bit. And it's, it's located in kind of an obscure location. Um, and what it is is just these, these flat rocks that have um, gravings, and they call them pickings, which is basically where the, where the, the rock has been, has been chipped more than um, sort of cut um, of rock art that I don't know what the date is, a couple, few, few thousand years ago. And I used to go there quite often. I went a couple of times by myself, which is not advisable. But um, I went with a friend of mine and, and, and he was like, can we take off our clothes and lay on the rocks? And we took off our clothes and we lay on these rocks. It was, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's completely, you know, it's out in the open. And it's just, it's just incredibly beautiful. And just to be charged by these, these, these ancient objects, it's probably like one of the best museum spaces. Um, yeah. So do you need to transport that entire environment into your own space somehow uh, in order to live no here. no no i want i know that that location is way too important and, and like you know and probably like like the full harmony it's you know it's a specific location and particular vibration point and all that shit but it's like also i would probably want to build my house to encapsulate it i, I wouldn't move there i wouldn't yeah no <laughs> <laughs> okay and lastly uh what, what's art for oh Oh, it's for everything. It's for life. It's for medicine. It's, you know, it's going back to the cave again um, as to why we, we, we did that. You know, why did we, and why did we paint on walls? It wasn't just to document things, you know. I, I came, uh, Koya said to me, they use menstrual blood uh, in some of the paintings. And that fucking changed the whole scape of what, of what those paintings were for me. And and I think, you know, I think that's where the answer lies is 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 in that really fundamental space of what art is. You know, it's 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 for joy, it's for healing and pleasure and sustenance. God help us if we don't have any of it. Um, it's so so absolutely crucial for our our beings and our our developments as 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 good people. You know, we need we need more good people to be validated, um, and I think just the fundamentals of who we are—it's it's really it's it's DNA thing. That's really what it is. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, this is lovely. Thanks, Pete. 
Tracy Rose shooting down Babylon is at Zeitz Mocha in Cape Town from the 17th of February to the 29th of August. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, and look at the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Julia Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalar. Huge thanks to Tracy Rose. We'll be back next week with A Brush With, the Danish artist Tal R. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.